Okay, so we are finishing uh, lesson four today, looking at uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we'll start on uh, page 28, and we're going to finish these last two pages. Uh, and we will be looking today at Christ's threefold work. Uh, looking at how he fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, so this will conclude our uh, brief overview of the person and work of Christ. And then next week, uh, Lord willing, in my absence, uh, you guys will begin the lesson five on the Holy Spirit. So, uh, Bob, can you open us in prayer? Lord, we're slim this morning. Lord, I would pray for safety for those that are still traveling to get here. Uh, it's a very dreary morning. Lord, put you of that who's called in sick. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can uh, spend a few minutes together discussing So, what we're looking at here are the, the three offices of Christ, uh, offices which he assumes in his role as the mediator, as the God-man, the one who mediates between God and man. And so, the first office that we see Christ taking upon himself is that of prophet. Uh, can I get someone to read Deuteronomy 18, 15, and then as a follow-up, uh, read Acts 3, 22. All right, so there we see the uh, prophecy given unto Moses that, that the Lord would raise up for his people a prophet uh, who is like Moses, one who is greater than Moses, and it would come from within the body of God's people, uh, that God would raise up this prophet in the midst of the, uh, meaning in the midst of the people of God. And so in Acts 3.22, uh, we, we read, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Uh, 
And here we see that uh, the apostle uh, Peter is connecting the prophecy that is given to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that God would raise up a prophet like him from the midst of the people. And he's applying that prophecy, showing that it was fulfilled in speaking of Jesus Christ. Because if you look at the context of that uh, Acts 3 passage, beginning in verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And then he applies the, the prophecy given to Moses uh, to Christ. Um, so we see that Scripture explicitly attributes to Christ this office of prophet. Uh, so what what is a prophet? Uh, give me give me just a, a brief working definition of what a prophet is. Uh, it's someone who speaks on behalf of God. Yeah, in its in its barest form, a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God, who speaks with the authority of God. Uh, that's why you read Scripture so often, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, uh, because they are speaking God's word to his people. Um, and so if we, if we understand that the office of prophet is one who speaks to the people of God, the word of God, with the authority of God, uh, then we can clearly see that Jesus uh, is a prophet. He holds the office of prophet because he speaks the word of God to his people uh, with the authority of God. Everything he says uh, even though he doesn't outright say these words, everything he says is with the authority of thus saith the Lord, because he is the Lord. Uh, and so he, he is speaking with the authority of God as well. Uh, can I get someone to read John eight twenty six through 28? Yeah, John 8, 26 to 28. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true. And I speak to the world these things which I have heard him. They understood not and spake them to the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he. And that I will do nothing of myself. 
But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. All right. So here we see Christ uh, in his teaching, in, in his explanation of what his job is, his duties are. He, uh, he says that he does nothing of himself, uh, but as the Father taught him, so he speaks these things. So here we see that prophetic office uh, being put on display, that Christ doesn't speak with his with his own uh, words, as it as it is, uh, but he he only speaks the things which God the Father has given unto him, um, and that is that is textbook of a prophet uh, that when they are speaking in their authoritative capacity, they are only speaking that which God has given them. Um, the the office of prophet. Uh, Sounds like there's squirrels in the attic. Yeah, I don't know if it it's squirrels or birds because I heard I heard really loud bird chirping uh, the other day. So it may be birds have nested up there. Um, but the office of prophet seems to be one that is very easily recognized in in the person of Christ. Um, so much so that even even false religions will say that Jesus was a prophet. Um, in Islam, he's regarded as one of the most high prophets, one of, one of the most well-respected prophets, um, so much so that they, you know, they utter the, the phrase after his name that they do after they, after they uh, say Muhammad's name, peace be unto him. They, they put him on equal levels. Um, and so, you know, even, even that false religion recognizes the prophetic office of Christ uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they do the same. Um, even, even some uh, non-Christian skeptics will, will say that Christ held some sort of prophetic role. Um, they may not use that phrase in the biblical sense, but they recognized that there was something unique about his teaching. Um, and so it, it seems like this is probably the most easily seen office of Christ to everyone. Uh, but the next one that we're going to talk about becomes a little bit more difficult for those outside of the Christian community to see. And that's who, that he holds the office of priest, uh, that he is the mediator uh, who both offers the sacrifice of himself for us and he makes intercession for us. 
Um, and our book notes that it's only because he is both God and man that his priestly work is sufficient to be able to save his people. Um, and here, here we need to we need to notice the twofold aspect of his priestly office that it is both him being the sacrifice. And the intercessor, um, which is unique, because if you look at the uh, at the priests of old, the priests of the old covenant, none of them were the sacrifice. God had to provide a sacrifice through a lamb, through a bull, through doves. Uh, none of the priests were sacrifices, but they were all intercessors. Uh, they all interceded uh, on behalf of men before God. That is the priestly work of the Old Covenant under the Aaronic priesthood is the people come to to confess their sins, to receive atonement, to be pardoned of their sins, the the priest would commit would offer the sacrifice of the lamb or the bull or the dove or, or even the grain offering or the drink offering. Uh, the priest would offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people before God. So it's almost the opposite of the office of prophet. The prophet receives the word from God and stands before the people as God's representative. The priest receives the, the word of repentance, if you will, from the people and stands before God as the representative of the people. Um, and so what we see in Christ is unique, though, because Christ not only uh, stood before the Father as the representative of the people, but he also presented himself as the sacrifice of atonement to the Father. And that's something that the, that the Old Covenant priests were not uh, able to do on their own. So where do we see Christ in this priestly office? Well, first we see it, uh, I mean, we see it all over Scripture. One of the most prominent and well-known passages is Psalm 110. Uh, in verse 4, we know that Psalm 110 is, is the Father speaking to the Son. Uh, and, and here we see the Father speaking unto the Son uh, of His duties, of His offices. Um, 
And here in verse 4 we read, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we see prophesied of Christ here in this psalm where the Father is speaking to the Son is that he is a priest. He, he, in, when he takes on his, his human form, when he takes on the role of mediator, he assumes upon himself the priesthood. Uh, and, and there's an issue with that if you understand Old Covenant uh, ecclesiastical order, uh, Old Covenant uh, ceremonial uh, law, and that is Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. And only those of the tribe of Levi are to be priests. And so Paul in in Hebrews uh, takes up this matter. And he says, how can it be that Christ uh, is a priest if he is from the tribe of Judah? And he points to Psalm 110. Uh, He actually gives one of the one of the best i mean obviously the best exposition of psalm 110 in, in the book of hebrews uh because there we see the holy spirit inspired interpretation of this psalm uh, and he says that yes christ is from the tribe of judah and if it were solely based on that then he would not be able to be a priest. But Christ is not a priest from the Aaronic priesthood out of the tribe of Levi. Instead, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that uh, somewhat mysterious figure that we see in, in Genesis where uh, Abram... Uh, Pays, pays tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek bless him, um, gives him a, a covenant meal of, of bread and wine. Uh, he, he's said to be a, a priest of the Most High God, uh, and he's, he's a king, the king of Salem. Um, And so we see that Christ is after that priesthood, the more ancient priesthood, uh, the everlasting priesthood, because Melchizedek is one who is without beginning or ending, one without mother or father, whose priesthood is eternal. And that's what we we read of in Hebrews. Uh, So we see the explicit statement here in Psalm 110 that uh, the son is to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we see in Hebrews that, that this 
verse of Psalm 110 is specifically applied to Christ. Uh, so, can I get someone to read First Timothy 2 and verse 5? So here we, we are seeing an aspect of Christ's priestly office. And this is, this is that duty of the priesthood that, that the Levitical priests were also able to um, fulfill in their office. That of intercessor, that of mediator. Um, and that's not to say that the priests of the Old Covenant were direct mediators between the people and God. They weren't. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And so even in their taking upon themselves this mediatorial role in their priestly office, it's still through Christ that they are able to bring uh, the sins of the people and the worship of the people to the Father. Uh, that aspect of the faith of religion did not change with the coming of Christ. Uh, he has always been the one through whom people must go to come to the Father. So here we see that, that Christ in his priestly office is the mediator between God and man. Uh, Bob, can you read 1 Peter 2 and verse 24? All right, um, so this verse kind of picks up in the middle of a thought, uh, and to understand what, what Peter is saying here, uh, starting at verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did not sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself uh, to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So here we see Peter 
arguing, making the case that uh, Christ's sacrifice was efficacious, uh, that it was uh, a, a worthy sacrifice. And so what was the nature of Christ's sacrifice that he offered that was efficacious, that was a worthy sacrifice? It was himself. And here we see the difference between Christ's priesthood and the Levitical priesthood where Christ offered himself as the sacrifice that he bore on himself the sins of his people. Uh, and, And here we see why it is that Christ's sacrifice of himself is efficacious, why, why it truly works, why it was a worthy sacrifice, um, and why no other sacrifices are needed. And that's because he offered the perfect sacrifice, which was himself. All of the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the, the lambs, the bulls, the doves, the, the grain offerings, the, the drink offerings, all of them pointed towards the perfect sacrifice, which is Christ Jesus. And so where, where those sacrifices of the Old Covenant were ineffectual in themselves and had to be repeated day after day, night after night. Christ's sacrifice was perfect and it was once for all never to be repeated. And so we see the completeness of his work as the priest in regards to offering the sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that his priestly office now ceases. Just because there's not a sacrifice to offer uh, does not mean that he is no longer operating in the capacity of a priest. The book of Hebrews says that he entered into the holy place and, and offered the sacrifice, sprinkling his blood upon the mercy seat, providing the, the atonement for the people. And after he did that, he then seated himself. And that was, was signifying that his work was done in, in sacrificing the animals because the priests were never given that moment of rest where they could sit. They were constantly, day after day, giving the sacrifices. But Christ offers the sacrifice and then goes and sits. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father And that is where uh, we see him continuing 
his office of a priest, not through the action of sacrifice, but through the action of intercession for his people. And we see this in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that Christ now lives to ever make intercession on behalf of his people. That is his duty in the office of priests now. Uh, and so we see the, the teaching of Scripture is uh, that his office of priest had a twofold duty, that of sacrificing himself and that of interceding on behalf of his people. And that the, the, the first aspect, the first duty of his priesthood has been completed, never again to be repeated. But that the second aspect is a perpetual one that will last forever. Uh, even, even when we enter into that state of glory when we are before the Father in heaven in our perfect state, in our glorified bodies, purged from all of our sin, Christ will still be our intercessor. Uh, and that is because it is his righteousness that clothes us, that grants us access before the Father And so, where prophet seems to be the easiest one for, for people to recognize, even unbelievers, false religions recognize uh, the prophetic role of Christ. Uh, priest is a little bit more difficult for those outside of the church to recognize uh, the, the Mohammedans, the, the Muslims, they, they'll recognize that Jesus was a prophet, but they say that it was blasphemous to say that he was the son of God uh, and that he could not have died on the cross. Um, they think it's blasphemous to say he was the son of God because they think that that means we believe that God had sex and that would be blasphemous to them. Um, and they say that it's blasphemous to say that he died on the cross um, providing an atonement uh, for, for sin because uh, that would be such a shameful thing for such a high and holy prophet. Uh, then you have others who would deny Christ's uh, sacrificial death. Um, obviously, atheists and agnostics, uh, those who have a humanistic worldview. Um, 
And so it, it's really those within the church who are able to easily see this, this function, this office of prophet in Christ Jesus. But I would say that the one that's most difficult for people to see in even within the church is his office as king. Um, and I say that not because I think people have a difficult time seeing that Christ, as he came into this world, was a king in his own right. Uh, most people recognize he's from the line of David, which means he rightfully uh, was the heir to the throne. Uh, And most people will say that he's established the spiritual kingdom uh, over which he is the head of the church. Um, And we would agree with that. But that's that's an incomplete understanding of Christ's office uh, of king and his being the mediatorial king over all things. Christ as our king rules as head of his church now and eternally over all present uh, over all present and future creation so he is he is the head over the church and he rules over all creation so he is the king over all not just over the church which is what most in the church would would say is Christ's uh role as king now. So, uh, to understand Christ as king, you have to understand the, the prophecy that was, was given unto uh, David, that, that David would have uh, a kingdom uh, that would not end. And we see, we see this covenant given unto David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, I started at the wrong place, but I'll continue. He will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. So here we see this prophecy, this great uh, prophecy in the covenant of uh, given to David that his throne would be established and would last forever. And we know that that the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy that David's seed would sit on the throne uh, came in uh, his son Solomon. Uh, and we know that that is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy uh, 
uh, in that he is the one who commits iniquity and is chastened by the rod. Um, but we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is that it is in Christ, the one who sits on the throne forever, who rules and reigns forever, the one who in himself didn't commit iniquity, but took upon himself the iniquity of us all and was chastened by the Father for our iniquity. Um, and who uh, the Spirit did not depart from, but, but is, is the Spirit of Christ himself. And so we see this, this covenant made to David and uh, that it is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Can I get one of you to read John 18 and verse, verses 36 and 37? John eighteen thirty six and thirty seven. Go ahead and read 37 too. So how does Jesus describe his kingdom in this passage? Uh, his kingdom is not of this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was, that was the issue with, or one of the issues with the Jews. They were anticipating a king, a Messiah, who would come in, who would remove the Roman oppressors and would establish a physical kingdom on the earth. Uh, and that's not what they got. That's not what Jesus did. Instead, his kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. 
So the kingdom of God is not a carnal one. It's not one with, you know, a castle and high walls. But instead, it's one of uh, the spirit working in the hearts of believers. It's one of community and fellowship uh, among brethren. And it's one that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth uh, when we all live together in that perfect physical kingdom. Uh, But as it is right now, that is not the kingdom that Christ came to establish on this earth. Um, And so that was the hiccup, that was the hangup with with the Jews. And even today, they, they still anticipate that the Messiah will come and, and establish a literal kingdom on earth. Um, and I don't know how, how familiar you are with, with what's going on in Israel right now. Uh, dispensationalists have been going crazy uh, all over the internet. Uh, apparently there is this Jewish man in Israel who is the Jewish leaders are claiming that he is the Messiah. Um, they have given him the titles of uh, that are that are reserved for the Messiah. He claims to have the entire uh, Torah memorized. Um, he's claiming they're claiming that he's doing miraculous signs. Um, and so they, they think that the Messiah has come in this guy. Uh, and what's interesting is this guy supposedly can do miracles, yet he has to wear glasses. Um, doesn't really make sense to me. But, you know, they, they're still anticipating this, this earthly kingdom. And they're from what they're saying about this supposed Messiah that's, that's come today, they're anticipating him becoming a civil leader and establishing a kingdom on the earth. Um, and all of the rhetoric is in, in relation to their, uh, their fight against the Palestinian Muslims. Um, but it's just, it, it's interesting to me that, that we're, seeing, we're seeing the after effects of the Jews' denial of Christ and that they're, they're so obstinate in what they think the Messiah should look like that they'll reject the one who, who is very clearly the Messiah and then embrace some guy who, I mean, all you have to do is look at him and see that he has to wear glasses to be able to see and tell that he's not the Messiah. Like, it, it just blows my mind. Uh, sorry I went off on that rabbit trail. I've not heard of this. 
Yeah, you, you should look into it. It's it's pretty fascinating. Uh, but also, I guess for Israel, they have uh, set up a government that is, I guess, right-wing. So uh, a lot of people feel empowered that they can drive out all the uh, Arabs from their land, so they're a lot more nationalistic. Mm-hmm. So in addition to, I guess, uh, self-proclaimed prophets, there are Yeah, and it's just—I just thought it was—it was fascinating how you know the very same mistakes that the Jews made two thousand years ago interjecting Christ, they're using those exact same mistakes now in embracing a false Messiah. Um, there are other things going on in Israel that are causing the dispensationalists to kind of go crazy too. Apparently there were two red heifers that were born. Uh, two red heifers. Yeah. Which That's a sign for something. The, the dispensationalists will tell you that, you know, when, when the end times are near that the, the temple will be rebuilt, the red heifers will be sacrificed and uh, in comes the the millennial reign. Uh, so only two red heifers? Or more? No, no. So. there be more than that in general. Oh, well, let's not Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, it's fascinating if you want to look into some of that. Uh, stuff dealing with Israel going on right now. Um, so most, this is where most people, uh, and even the next, the next point of Ephesians one twenty two. This is where most people will really kind of cap their understanding of Christ taking on the office of king. Uh, in Ephesians 1, verse 22, Paul's speaking of Christ. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, uh, which is the body, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so here we see that, that Christ in his mediatorial kingship uh, is the head of the church. And this is where most people will, will stop in their discussion of Christ as king. That he's in the line of David, that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and that he's the head of the church. In fact, that's where our workbook stops. Which shocks me, it absolutely shocks me. Because this is a workbook produced by the RPCNA, and we profess that we hold to the mediatorial kingship of Christ over all things. And yet we end it with, it's a spiritual kingdom and Christ is the head over the church. But that's not it. That's not all of it. Uh, Look at Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2, I don't know how we can have a discussion of Christ as the King and not look at Psalm 2. And it's not anywhere mentioned in this workbook and related to this. I'm just going to read the whole thing. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain, t- vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion." I will declare the decree the Lord hath said to me. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron and shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. How can you have a discussion about Christ and his office as king? without talking about this psalm. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. That is Christ. And we know it's Christ because then Christ goes on to say, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said to me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So we see the Father speaking at the beginning and then then the Son picking up. The Father says, Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. And then Christ immediately picks up and says, I'm that King. God said to me, You are my Son. Today I've begotten thee. We see that in His baptism. Uh as the Spirit descended upon Christ as a dove, and the voice of the Father came out from the heavens, saying, uh, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Well, it sounds like we just need some edit. It does. It needs. I mean, and it's a quick edit. It's like a two. It's like a two-point edit. But just make that point. Um, And so what we see here of Christ in this kingship, he has given something. And what is it that is given unto him? Verse 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He's not just the mediatorial king over the church. Yes, his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Yes, he is the head of the church. But it doesn't end there. He is the king 
over the heathen or the nations, as other translations put it. He is the king over the uttermost parts of the earth. They are his inheritance. They are his possession. And because of that, they, are, they have a duty that is required of them. And that is to recognize him as king. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling, and re, uh, with fear and rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son, lest you be lest He be angry, and you perish from the way. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's why I say that I think this may be the hardest point for people even within the church to see. Not, not that it's hard for them to see Christ's kingship that he assumes upon the office of king. But the extent of his kingship. And if we do not recognize Christ as mediatorial king over the nations, then we are stripping Christ of something that is his. And that is wicked. Yeah. So, you know, in our conversation about Christ in his threefold office, don't neglect this important aspect of his kingship. Uh, there's, there's a whole psalm dedicated to this aspect of his kingship. Don't neglect it. Don't take away from Christ something that is rightfully his. Um. And so there we see the from scripture the the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest and king. Does anyone have any questions concerning uh the threefold work of Christ? Um I was going to ask about uh, his office of I guess mediator. Um and that he mediates Yeah, so, so let's talk of it in, in terms of his kingship. That's, that's the easiest one to explain. Um, and then I think you can apply the principle to his other threefold office. Um, Christ, because he is God, has what's called essential kingship. 
Because God, in who he is, is king over all creation. But there is a particular inherited mediatorial kingship that is given to Christ in his God-man hypostatic union um, that is unique from his essential kingship. Uh, and we see this in, in you know, Psalm 2, speaking of, you know, the son being given the nations as his inheritance. He was already king over the nations as God. But here we're looking at Christ in his mediatorial role being given the nations as his inheritance. We see it in uh, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Uh, Christ already had all authority. He's the king over all things. He has authority over all things as God. But as the God-man, that authority had to be bestowed upon him. Um, And so it's a distinction between uh, what is essential of Christ, what's part of his essence as God, and what is... uh, what is delegated unto him as the mediator. And so there, there's interplay there, but they are unique functions of Christ in his uh, humanity, in his God-man uh, nature. And so when we, when we speak of mediator or, or his mediatorial work, that's speaking of his work as the God-man as the redeemer of mankind. Uh, but when you speak of his essence, when you speak of his you know, divine nature, you're speaking of that which is true because he's God, not because he's the redeemer of mankind. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the Westminster does a good job of delineating that. Um, I just got new copies of the Jesus as King booklet. And it has in the back of it like a really short, I think, seven-question catechism in it that they made. Um, And it goes over the distinction between essential kingship and mediatorial kingship. And that same principle can then be applied uh, throughout. Uh, Any other questions? All right. Richard, can I get you to pray for us, close us? Entire work 